The Earth Mother, Pachamama, watches over all the Inca, bringing fertility to the Andes. Where if you take too much from her, she shows her anger, sending earthquakes to make the land tremble. Every trade must be fair and her power must be respected. There's excitement and festivities, dancing, singing, music. Pachamama is to be worshipped. A girl just 15 is led to the peak of a volcano. The air is thin, cold, the journey hard, but she knows what she must do. The girl sits on the hard, frozen ground, scared but peaceful. She's been given cocoa leaves and alcohol, and she waits. Frost in robes, her shivering body, her chilled breath no longer visible in the air as she huddles against the elements. Taking one last look at Pachamama, the Earth Mother, and her daughters, Aksamama, the Potato Goddess, and Mamakilla, the Moon Goddess, who illuminates the night, she closes her eyes for the final time. She sits as still as ice. Welcome to the curiosity of a child. Hi, Anton. How are you? <laughs> Hello, I'm, I'm good. <laughs> I thought we'd start with the story this time, something a bit different. Mm-hmm. And um, that's actually based on a true account. Because in 1999, the body of a mummified girl was discovered atop a volcano in Argentina. Mm-hmm. And I've got a picture of her here, which I have in the show notes. How lovely. Yes, yeah, so it's actually preserved sitting up. And she'd been sacrificed 500 years earlier to appease the goddesses who brought food and life to the steep Andean slopes. And it's a really difficult place to survive because there's no large areas of land to cultivate and the soils there can be really poor. But there is one very nutritious plant that grows here. The potato! Yeah, that's right. The humble potato. I mean, it feels like such an everyday and ordinary thing. And you can't, if you think about the potato, it feels like it's been around forever, doesn't it? Mm. But in Europe, and Asia at least, we've only really eaten it for the last four to five hundred years. And here's a great quote from John Reader, who wrote one of the key books used for my research for this episode. And when asked, how did people react when they heard your next book? The Propricious Esculent was all about potatoes. Um, he replied with... The potato is the best bundle of nutrition known, but it's not easy to persuade people to take it seriously. As a topic of conversation, it inevitably evokes some degree of mirth, or a condescending smirk from those who consider the topic not just amusing, but foolish too. People simply do not believe such a commonplace commodity deserves serious attention. And neither do we, so that's the end of the episode. Thanks for listening, guys. Yeah, thank you. Support us on Patreon for the full <laughs> episodes. No, no, no there will be bonuses on Patreon, though. He's right. Um, it does deserve more attention than people give it. So, if you think about the history of the potato, many people will probably have the Irish potato fandom come to mind, and that's quite well known. So, we're going to spend much of this episode actually exploring its earlier history to understand how we reached where we did. So, the potato is native to South and Central America. And there are over 150 species in the wild. And most of them don't look like the ones you find in the supermarket today. And I've got some pictures here, which will be in our show notes. And hopefully, in chapters on the podcast, so if your app supports it, there might be pictures going along with this episode, which you can look at. So, um, yeah, the, the wild potatoes, they're much smaller than the ones you'd find in the shops. And they're really oddly shaped and knobbly. So, Anton, what do you think of these pictures here? They look like completely different... Um vegetables and different fruits yeah some look like pine cones and all sorts it's amazing mm-hmm. isn't it really knobbly and quite interesting patterns and textures there a bit like grapes some of them yeah very purple and orange and yellow and all sorts so loads of colors you can imagine peeling those <laughs> we generally call them a root vegetable but they're actually tubers so a tuber is part of the stem that goes underground into the plant and if you look at a potato you'll see they're covered in eyes so in front of your two bags with mm. what do they say on them Vegetables. Yeah, so reach into the first one. Okay, I don't trust this. Aha, the potato. Yeah, can you see the eyes in it? And there's a few little bits growing off it, so I've left it a while. Yeah. So the eyes are little like nodules mm-hmm. in there, all the little holes. So that is where the stem 
will grow from. Then if you look in the next bag, you'll see what happens if they're left long enough. <laughs> ah, <laughs> yeah. I'm putting that back down. Yeah, what did that look like? It, the potato looks like it's had everything sucked out of it and then there's more roots and stuff growing out of it. Yeah, that one's gone a bit shriveled, but there's long roots on that one, so it's been left a while. And actually you get some of the cultures, um, particularly the ones that, that brought potatoes in that were traded with uh, in Chile, they would make uh, pottery that combined the essence of a person and a potato. Mm-hmm. And there's a picture here of one, so it's a potato with a person's head. Nice. But not Mr. Potato Head. No. So you can actually take one of those potatoes that you just picked up there and you could cut it into pieces. Then each of the eyes, you could plant those to grow new potato plants from. Ooh. And that is actually the primary way that we propagate them. So rather than using uh, seeds, um, we will claim the potatoes, but that can lead to big problems as we'll discover later. Disease? In a way, yeah. Okay. Um, so do you like potatoes? I do like potatoes. I like chips. You know, yeah, I like roast potatoes. It's probably my favourite. No, back to the podcast. But did you know that potatoes are poisonous? No. Well, they are. Or at least many of the wild ones are. Potatoes are actually related to tomatoes. Both are members of the deadly nightshade family. Yeah, so do you remember from our magic episode that nightshade was used in the witch's ointment Mm -hmm. and was tended to by the devil himself? (sighs) But what makes them so dangerous is their lethal levels of glycoalkaloids. How dangerous are glycoalkaloids? Well, you only need probably about five milligrams for every one kilogram of your body weight. So Ooh. pretty dangerous. And symptoms associated with glycoalkaloid poisoning from potatoes include a bitter burning sensation in the mouth, flu-like symptoms, um, nausea, vomiting, stomach and abdominal cramps and diarrhoea. My favourite. <laughs> if you allow your potatoes to flower and fruit, they produce green berries like small unripe tomatoes the key difference being they might kill you if you eat them yeah i did actually find one article where the author he tasted but spat out the berries at various stages of ripeness and at first he said they taste a bit like green tomatoes then as they ripened they became a sort of a bittersweet then when fully ripe a mix of melon and tomato but please don't try that yourself okay no potatoes are also related to aubergines peppers and tobacco so do they contain nicotine Yes, but a cigarette contains around 18,000 times more nicotine than the same weight of potato. Phew, that's good. So we are a non-smoking podcast, but we are pro-potato. Mm-hmm. So how did the potato take over the world and become the fourth most important food crop after maize, wheat and rice? I don't know. <laughs> well, we're going to find out a little bit, okay? So today it's grown globally in around 150 countries, all the way from sea level up to 4,000 metres in altitude and from the far north to the deep south. Now there may be 79% water but your basic potato is actually packed full of loads of nutrients and carbohydrates, proteins, amino acids and all sorts. They contain loads of vitamins including vitamin C and during the um, Clodike gold rush that was up in Canada they were sold for their weight in gold due to their ability to help fight scurvy, so the vitamin C. Mm-hmm. They also have complex B vitamins, iron, calcium, potato, ah, potato, <laughs> of course they've got potato, <laughs> potassium and all sorts. Um, and you can actually just live on a diet of potato and you've got a story about that later, haven't you? Mm-hmm. But first you need uh, them to be safe, reducing the level of glycocolloids by about 20 times. Yeah, so we're going to find out how that was done. So first we need to travel back about 8,000 years to the first evidence of potato domestication by the Aramara people in the Lake Titicaba region. And this is on the border of Peru and Bolivia. And they may have actually started domesticating further back than this, but it's hard to find evidence. Now, this is an amazing lake, okay? It's over 3,500 metres above sea level, up in the Andes Mountains. It's a really big lake. And on it, there's artificial floating islands made of weaved um, reeds. That's cool. Yeah, so there's a picture there. <laughs> that is very cool. Quite yeah. small. Really, really amazing. Now, the Amara... They would have spent years and years selectively breeding potatoes to try and find the best ones, okay? To get rid of the toxins. And back then, you wouldn't have any tools to test the levels of toxins either. Yeah, that's right. So um, it's a weird situation because for the potato to become useful, you need it toxin-free. But to bother growing it, you need to have it toxin-free as well. 
So mm-hmm. where do you start on that process? It's a weird one, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Now, one thing they might have done is mixed clay, which was found um, in the soil in the region. And when you mix it with potatoes, um, it allows you to eat them safely. These experiments have shown that elements in the clay bind with the glycoalkaloids, allowing them to safely pass through the body. So was this found out by accident? Maybe somebody left a potato out, which perhaps they tried cooking them or something and left it in like a fire pit and it mixed together. And thought, oh, my tummy doesn't feel so bad this time after <laughs> yeah. eating it. Because I had a couple of other thoughts that maybe, um, I haven't found evidence for these, perhaps the people there, they had some a stronger constitution or some natural immunity just through generations of eating the potatoes. Um, or maybe there's some bacteria in their gut biome which will help reduce the levels. Who knows? Now, another traditional way to make potatoes safe to eat is to create cherno. Now, do you know what that is? Mm-mm. We'd like to learn how to make it. Yes, please. So what you do, you get your potatoes and you dig them up and you expose them for several nights to the freezing temperatures up in the Andes. And then during the day, you cover them up so they're not exposed to the hot sun. Mm-hmm. And then when you've done that for a few evenings, um, you will soak them in cold running water for a month. And then after that, you take them out of the water and freeze them for another night. And during the day, you walk on top of them and this will re- help to remove the peels and also squash out with the water. So a bit like the potato in that bag. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, then finally, you leave them to dry in the sun for a couple of weeks. Now that reminds me a little bit of the black pepper. You know, when they keep them in the... Mm, yeah. Um, yeah, from that episode. Now, this freezing and drying process also makes me think of that poor girl at the top of the volcano. Is that they're almost like mummified potatoes oh, at that she, stage. She was a potato. She was. Whilst this process is a lot of effort and takes several weeks, um, it will actually remove the toxins from the potato. You can also store this freeze-dried potato much longer than you can with fresh potatoes. We should try this. Potatoes are still grown in the traditional manner in many parts of Peru, and it's really difficult work. We only 3% of their land is suitable for growing crops. In Europe, it's about 30% of our land. And the terrain there and climate is very diverse. I mean, you've got arid coastal plains, you've got lush rainforest, and then between the two, you've got the Andes mountain range, haven't you? Mm-hmm. So you can't really imagine a more extreme, varied landscape. And much of the population lives above 3,000 metres. Juan Ramos, he's a 60-year-old farmer and he lives with his wife, Sofia, at over 3,500 metres. And some officials from the um, Centro Internacional de la Papa um, come to visit him. They're like the governing body of potatoes mm-hmm. and they want to check on his crop. And his patch of land is it's just a small rocky area and it's really hard to work. But they've actually planted over 50 varieties of potato. Can I say the names of these? You can say the names, yeah. And then... Uh, what they translate into, is it? Yeah. Okay. Waka, kalu, cow's tongue, puka, pepino, red cucumber, kui, solu, guinea pig, fetus, and papa, ilonchoi, wakachi, or the potato that makes the new bride weep. So named because it's so hard to peel. <laughs> yeah, so much be one of those really knobbly ones. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and the, the potatoes that he has, they're, they're amazing colours, like we saw earlier. There'd be the purples and oranges and all sorts. Even the flesh, it looks almost like beetroot. Mm-hmm. I can't really imagine those for sale in supermarkets over here. Mm. And there's been so many different flavours and things as well. But as I said, this is hard work. So when he swings his ayacho, and that's like a traditional tool, a bit like a pickaxe. And you use it to dig the soil. And it's got like a leaf, almost shaped um, tip on it as well for digging. And it really becomes a full family event with his nephews and cousins all helping. Now one of them is still, she is collecting the dog potatoes into a plastic sheet. And she'll sling it over her shoulder. In an hour, she'll move over 150 kilograms of these potatoes um, just to be stored elsewhere. But over this really steep, rocky terrain. I mean, this is difficult work. They're tough people. Mm-hmm. And to us, this may look really crude. And the traditional methods, they are dying away because Juan, he dreams to have enough money to actually allow him to buy his own potatoes instead of having to harvest them among the rocks. Mm. Well, have you ever heard of the Tawanaku Empire? No. I hadn't really heard of them either. 
And they had an amazing practice of farming. So I've got some pictures here, which I have in the show notes as well, and I'll explain what it is. Um, so they also lived around Lake Titicara, near where the potatoes were first domesticated. And their influence lasted from around 600 to 1000 CE. And during that time, they constructed these really large regions of what's called raised field agriculture, or as they called it, Sakokwalu. And this could be up to 130 square kilometres. So what they'd do, they'd make these raised beds comprising of layers of rocks and gravel and soil. And they could be about 5 to 20 metres wide and up to 200 metres long. Then surrounding these raised beds would be canals filled with water. So why do you think they did that? So that the water could like drain nicely. Yeah, and it keep the all the soil moist. Mm-hmm. But even cleverer than that, because it gets really cold there at night and hot during the day, the water would cool the land during the day and absorb all the heat. Then at night time, it would radiate the heat back out and raise temperatures by up to nine degrees, Ooh. stopping frost forming. Like really, really clever. So um, traditional agricultural techniques, they might yield maybe two and a half metric tons of potatoes per hectare. Then modern farming practices have taken that to about 14 and a half tons. Can you guess how much the Tiwanaka produced 1200 years ago? One hundred and twenty-four tons. One hundred and twenty-four tons. Yeah. So a lot more than modern practices. Are you sure with your guess? Hundred percent certain. Okay. Well, estimates say twenty-one tons per hectare. Yes, yeah, so still fifty percent more than modern practices. Now there is a little bit debated this actually how reliable it was, but still incredibly clever technique. They'd also grow uh, quinoa and other brains and things there. Anton, do you eat potatoes? I do. Do we live in Peru? We don't. No, we don't. So uh, how do potatoes reach us? Um, Aeroplane. There were no aeroplanes then. Okay. Um, Costa Rica packet. That hadn't been built yet. (laughs) Um, Do you want me to tell you? Not yet. One more guess. Okay. Um, Swimming. Swimming potatoes? No, swimming people with potatoes. No, a little, little bit far to swim. I'm okay. not sure how they'd work as buoyancy aids either. They actually came as part of what is called the Columbian Exchange. And do you know what that is? I do not. There you go. Shall I tell you? Yes. So it was the exchange of ideas, food, crops, people, and of course diseases between the New World and the Old World after Columbus's voyage in... 1492. That's correct. At least you got something, right? Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, and in that we got potatoes, sweet potatoes, which in the historical records are often confused, making it really hard to research this topic for academics. Uh, You've also got chilli peppers, tomatoes, and of course my favourite, chocolate, and many other foods. I think something like 60% of all the foods we eat today, or vegetables maybe that is, uh, come from the Americas. That's quite a lot. Like globally. Not just us, but all over the world. And loads of national cuisines are built on stuff that isn't really native to them. <laughs> it's amazing, that. So can you think of anything that we might have given them in return? Uh, yeah, our old friend Smallpox. Yeah, great exchange, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, listen to our Intelligence Speech Conference uh, episode for more about Smallpox. The story of how Europeans began eating potatoes, it's... Long and mixed and full of untruthful anecdotes. So shall we kill a few lies to begin? Okay. Sir Walter Raleigh did not introduce potatoes to Ireland. No. Sir Francis Drake did not introduce the potato to Europe. No. Frederick the Great did not introduce the potato to Germany. No. They did not give you leprosy. Good. Mm -hmm. People thought they gave you leprosy because of their um, knobbly bits and stuff and it looked like leprosy limbs. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Lovely. And because they're not mentioned in the Bible either. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, oh, that must be dangerous. Yeah. Um, So after the Spanish conquered South America, I mean, skipping a bit of history there, Mm -hmm. (laughs) they didn't initially have much interest in the potato as something to feed themselves. Instead, they brought over European crops and farming techniques, and they grew really well in the climate there. However, they did encourage the cultivation of potatoes and collected taxes in the form of tuna, the freeze-dried potato. Yeah. Um, and it was used to feed the workers who were building the roads and the towns. And also the silver miners 
were fed nearly exclusively on it. So potatoes powered the workforce and this became a common pattern not just in South America but elsewhere where the potatoes spread. And the silver that was extracted from those mines and taken back to Europe gave Spain the wealth and the power to dominate large portions of Europe for almost a century. But it's very easy to always think of this as one-sided, isn't it? As the evil Europeans and Spaniards invading. And yeah, we did do that. I think part of that's just human nature and history, and it's unpleasant, but that's what happens. But I found a letter here from July 1533 from a boy called Gaspar, and it's to his father. And the son here joined Francisco Bizarro. So you know that name? He's the conquistador? Yes. Oh, yeah, I do, actually. Yeah, so I'm going to just read some portions of the letter here. To my longed-for father. Dear sir, it must be about three years ago that I got a letter from you, in which you asked me to send you some money. God knows how sorry I was not to have sent you anything then, because if I had anything, there wouldn't have been any need for you to write. I've always tried to do the right thing, but it wasn't possible till now. God knows, I give you my word that I've never had a penny my whole time since I came to these parts until six months ago, when God was pleased to give me more than I deserved, and I now have over 3,000 ducats. Sir, I'm sending you 213 pesos of good gold in a bar with an honourable man from San Sebastian. You have it turned into coin, then bring it to you. I send you more, except he's taking more money for other people too, and couldn't take more. His name is Pedro. Sir, I'd like to be the messenger myself, but it couldn't be because we're in a new country and we haven't been here long and we aren't given the license to leave except the married men who have been in these parts for a long time. I expect to be there with you in two years with the aid of our Lord. I swear to God that I have a greater desire to be there than you have to see me so I can give you a good old age. Give my greetings to Catalina, my brothers and my sisters and my uncle and his daughters, especially the older one, as I am much in her debt. Sir, the only thing I want to ask is that you do good for the souls of my mother and all my relatives, and if God lets me get there, I'll do it very thoroughly myself. There's nothing more to write presently, except I'm praying for our Lord Jesus Christ to let me see you before I die. Your son, who would rather see you than write to you. Gaspar de Garat. So that shows that a lot of the people over there must have been so weird going to this other country, eh? I mean, there's some sort of desperation in his letter. So he knows he's not going to go home. And he's, it's not like today where you would have seen that place on TV before or something. And it's mm -hmm. a strange, mysterious land. And because he's not married, he can't go home. But he would actually be killed in November that year before his dad had even received the letter. But there's no mention of potatoes, are there? No. But those who were returning to Spain, so he mentions like the married men could return to Spain, they probably would have taken them with them. And the first European description of the potato comes from 1601, and it recounts the Spanish entering the high valleys of the Andes in 1537 and watching the local people cultivating potatoes. Juan de Castellanas wrote, The houses were all stocked with maize, beans and truffles, spherical roots which are sown and produced uh, a stem with its branches and leaves, and some flowers, although few, of a soft purple colour and the roots of the same plant, which is about three palms high. They are attached underneath the earth, and the size of an egg, more or less, some round and some elongated. They are white and purple and yellow, flowery roots of good flavour, a delicacy to the Indians, and a dainty dish, uh, even for the Spaniards. So it sounds potato-like to me. Mm -hmm. And then potatoes, they started to trickle into Europe via the Spanish. And it may also be that some of the early records of the discoveries that the Spanish found were hidden from the other European rivals, making it even harder to unearth this. Mm -hmm. um, and it's pretty much impossible to know who the first person was, and it's probably numerous people. Um, there's also confusion in the records between potatoes and sweet potatoes and other vegetables coming back at the time. We do have some evidence, though. The Hospital de la Sangre in Seville has per, um, has purchased records dating back to 1546 and on 27th of December 1573 they bought potatoes for the first time. Wow. Um, at first they didn't buy many but orders increased over time as they became cheaper due to increased local cultivation. Yeah, because the 
uh, dates on the records for when they bought them show that they must have been grown locally, actually in Spain, and not brought back. Mm-hmm. So definitely growing them there. And this is also around the same time that the there's the Dutch Revolt, where they saw independence from the Spanish. So there's a map here if you aren't familiar with um, the Spanish Empire at the time. So they're covering obviously Spain and Portugal, much of the Netherlands, a little bit of Germany and France and Italy and all sorts, aren't they? Everywhere. So the march from Spain to the Low Countries is a pretty long one. And as you know, an army marches in its stomach, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. So the supply line, it ran from Spain through northern Italy, southwestern Germany, southeastern France, all the way to Belgium. And the Spanish armies brought with them potatoes. And farmers along the route also grew potatoes and they sold them to the military formations and supply trains. So there may have already been some potatoes spreading out into that region already, not just the ones that the soldiers were taking up there. The peasants were probably growing them for their own consumption rather than for commercial sale. And in 1588, there's a Belgian gentleman, and he was giving a tour of his botanical garden to a visitor, showing off all his amazing rare plants that he collected. And then the visitor commented, like, why are you growing potatoes? I mean, they're widely grown back down in Italy. So it shows that, okay, in Italy and Spain... Yeah, spread. Yeah, and then where he was, it hadn't. By 1715, all along the route that the Spanish army had taken, potatoes were being grown as field crops. And the spread is not solely down to military manoeuvres and things, but there's also records of Dutch traders selling them at the ports like Amsterdam. It's also clear that the Habsburgs' influence over much of Europe certainly would have helped. Is they're going to spread it around their territories like on the map, okay? Mm-hmm. Although further afield, a hundred years earlier, there's a Mughal statesman, uh, Asaf Khan, and he served uh, potatoes excellently well-dressed at a banquet in Rajasthan. But we don't know how it got there. Any ideas? Um, I'm not sure. Do you know where Rajasthan is? Uh, India. Yeah, it's on the border of India and Pakistan. So potatoes had got all the way there. How? There were Portuguese and Dutch traders who, uh, as they sailed around the coasts, they would be dropping off at different trading ports and whaling stations and things. So that could be how. So what about new potatoes? Like, are those younger potatoes? Are those poisonous? They're okay. Don't worry about those. They're, they've been thoroughly tested. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Fear not. Some potatoes have been dangerous, but not for the normal reasons. In 1778, there was the War of Bavarian Succession, and this became known as the Potato War. And there are several reasons for this. It may be because it took place during a potato harvest and the soldiers survived by eating the potatoes. And I think they were camped on each side of a river and they couldn't really get to each other. And there were potato fields there, so they just dug them up and ate them. But it's also another reason why the peasantry like potatoes is because um, if you're an army marching through somewhere and there's corn or wheat or something, you can chop it down. It's really visible, isn't it? If mm-hmm. you're hungry. Well, potatoes are hidden underground. Yeah. Which led to some distrust for a while by the potatoes. It's hidden away. Um, but it also meant that for peasants, they could hide their feedstocks. I've got a couple of theories. Well, actually, one, I'll just say that. I thought if they're the other side of the rivers, maybe they'll throw potatoes at each other. Um, and two, if you said they weren't mentioned in the Bible uh, because they weren't over, um, maybe people would think if they're following the Bible that if the crops are growing like mainly underground, they'll think they're growing from hell. Oh, yeah. I hadn't thought of that. It's a good idea. Actually, you were close as well with the throwing potatoes at each other because there is a theory that they would fire potatoes at each other instead of using cannonballs. <laughs> That's even better. <laughs> and I believe you also have another good story about um, how the potato, how the potatoes began eating the French, French fries, <laughs> how the French began eating potatoes. Yeah. Um, Antoine Par- Parmentier was a French pharmacist who was taken prisoner by the Prussians during the Seven Year War between France and Prussia. He was kept as a prisoner for three years and fed nearly entirely on potatoes. This must have been scary for him as back home in France, they were feared and not eaten, as we already said. When he was released in 1763, he returned to France, surprised at how healthy he had remained and his curiosity led him to study what is in the food that makes us healthy. He wrote, I think which will always appear astonishing, is that we have lived centuries without having the curiosity to seek out the nature of the substance that nourishes us. His aims were to reduce 
the calamities of famine. And he chose the potato uh, with which to do this. And he had several cunning plans to convince the peasants, nobles and the king. On Louis XVI's birthday, Parmentia presented him and Marie Antoinette uh, with a bouquet of potato flowers, which the king pinned to his lapel and Marie wore in her hair. All the lords and ladies of the court were present as Parmentia served a banquet full of potatoes. Now they had royal approval, it was fashionable uh, to be seen with potatoes. But he still needed to convince the general population, and this was Parmentia's next genius plan. He ordered 40 acres on the outskirts of Paris um, to be planted with potatoes and heavily guarded to make it seem like they were very important. But at night, there would be no guards. Curious peasants soon began investigating and stealing the potatoes. If they're good enough for the king, they're good enough for us. Soon, potato eating became common in Paris, but rapidly spread throughout France. When the revolution struck France, not long later, Louis told Parmentier, France will thank you someday for having found bread for the poor. Parmentier was a hero, and not one of the many executed. In fact, Napoleon awarded him one of the first Légion du Honneur. Yeah, he's an interesting chap, actually, Parmentier. Mm-hmm. And one of the other things he had to battle was um, the church and their belief in the dangers of potatoes but that did change and there was actually pamphlets sent to all the churches with fact sheets and the advantages of potatoes for priests to read from the pulpit the potato had also reached england and ireland and become established as a personal crop grown in vegetable gardens long before it's a field crop like elsewhere in europe and it's thought that potatoes maybe reached islands with basque fishermen who had sailed up there and they had them aboard on their ship, maybe because of their high levels of vitamin C. And when a Cornish rector demanded that his tenants started paying a teeth on their potatoes, they refused, saying that they'd been cultivating them for time out of mind and never paid before. Now, a teeth is a 10% uh, tax and profits that's given to the church. And then given that the rector demanded this, it suggests that maybe the growing of potatoes was starting to become more widespread. Mm-hmm. Because you're only going to attach the commercial goods. So what effect were all these probably millions of potatoes being grown in Europe having? Uh, less people are getting scurvy. <laughs> yeah, more people being fed. Yeah, because today we're really lucky. Because generally, we've got enough to eat, don't we? Mm-hmm. And it's really easy to think that this has always been the case. But France actually suffered 89 major famines between the 10th and 18th century. And then from 1560 to 1680, there were over 5,000 French women convicted of infanticide. So that's killing babies, yeah? Mm. Really unpleasant. And a contemporary report uh, writes that the rivers resound with the cries of children who have been plunged into them. That's lovely. Yeah, what, horrible. What's this got to do with potatoes? Starvation through Europe. Yeah. Then the records show uh, a big skew in the number of boys to girls as uh, boys could do the hard labour in the fields, so uh, the girls were sacrificed, much like that poor one on the volcano. Mm-hmm. So the existing food sources were not enough to sustain the population of Europe, and war and failed harvest regularly took their toll. But as potatoes spread, so did health and growth of population. A hectare of wheat produces enough protein to feed seven people annually, whilst potatoes have uh, enough to feed 17 people. Not only that, they also produced three times more calories. From 1750 to 1850, Europe's population grew from 140 million to 266 million. In Ireland, it really boomed. They had the densest rural population anywhere in Europe. This meant that families could parcel up their land into ever smaller plots and give their children enough land to still grow everything they needed to eat. And in Ireland, the conditions, they were dreadful and... British rule didn't really do anything to improve it because they were literally surviving only on potatoes mashed with some milk and maybe a little bit of butter. And a lot of the Irish, they were sleeping on the floor of their houses in damp, cold conditions. But despite all that, officials still commented on how strong and healthy they were compared to many English labourers. Mm-hmm. That's thanks to the potato. 
And there are some arguments that have been made that this increase in health and strength and efficiency and population um, actually helped power the Industrial Revolution and European exploration throughout the world. These larger, healthier populations with more free time to work in factories, etc., or go off and conquer the world. Mm-hmm. So that is the difference that potatoes made in Europe. Yeah, they're not not a laughing matter like most people think they are. No. So potatoes, do you think they are wonder food? I mean, what possibly could go wrong? I think they're pretty good. They don't cause leprosy. They <laughs> they're only toxic sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, minimal danger there. Yeah. But nearly all the potatoes that we grow actually just come from a few wild species. And we don't grow them from seed as uh, cross-pollination means that you won't know exactly what type of potato you get. So what do we do instead? We use the um, same potatoes' eyes, yeah, um, that they sprout from. Yeah, so they're all clones, aren't they? Mm-hmm. And so what sort of problems can that cause? If one, if they're not like uh, correct and they are toxic. Oh, it also makes them vulnerable to disease. That's what I said earlier. <laughs> and he so, only said, yeah, kind of. So I didn't think it was that. Yeah, so when you mention the potato famine, many people will immediately think of Ireland, but it's actually a much larger problem than that. Um, way back in the summer of 1842, farmers in Philadelphia noticed that their potato plants were starting to wilt. And when they dug up the soil, they, the potatoes were just a black, slimy mush. Mm. Um, and it quickly spread over much of North America, devastating harvests. But it wasn't a primary food crop there, so they could fall back on other food and wheat and things. And by June 1844, this blight had crossed the Atlantic and it appeared in Belgium and 88% of their crop was destroyed. In the Netherlands, 71%. And it spread to Germany, France and Russia and hundreds of thousands of people died. Um, But there were grains and things to fall back on. Especially in Russia as well. They can't make their potato vodka. (laughs) No, what are they going to (laughs) do? And in the 1st of August, 1845, it actually spread to us here in the Channel Islands. And then also soon on to England and Ireland. Now, this is the island with the densest rural population in Europe. Ireland, with the biggest dependency on potatoes, they'd actually been exporting their potato crop to mainland Europe mm-hmm. to uh, help feed people who were suffering from the blight. And I'm not going to go into details here, there's so many good books and podcasts and things on the subject, but it was an awful, awful time. I mean, millions of people starved or emigrated from Ireland because there was no food to eat. So just as the potato had given life to so many, potato blight took it away just as easily. And we needed, obviously, a way to fight this blight. We, but before we can do that, we've got to understand what's causing it, don't we? Mm-hmm. And today we know because it's actually a fungus that gets into the, the leaves. It goes through these stomata, you know, little breathing holes in the cells that leaves breathe through. Yeah. And then they send a little tendrils there, little white wiggly fingers, and those will go and sap uh, nutrients directly from the cells inside the leaf and kill the plants. That's uh, not good. No. But for years there were arguments about exactly what was causing it, because the prevalent theory was that it was just particularly damp um, weather that had caused the potatoes to rot on the ground. And it'd actually be nearly 40 years before a chap called Benedict Preville, uh, a professor at um, Montaban, um, started to understand what was happening. And he took spores of the fungus and he put them in little dishes with a small piece of copper. And he noticed that that was killing the spores. And it's surprised that it took so long for this to happen because copper had long been used as a way to help treat uh, fungal infections in wheat and other crops. Yeah. So it shows, like from our elements episode, just how important it is to understand, well, everything really, isn't it? So you never know when you need that knowledge. <laughs> how to understand everything, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's important. <laughs> <laughs> and soon he would start doing larger trials uh, because there's already the practice of using something called a Bordeaux mix, which was made of lime, water, and copper sulfate in the vineyards of France. And he found that this solution worked well on the potato crops as well. But... Um, Sadly, we might have discovered this much earlier because there's a letter from the 4th of September 
1846 from a Welsh gentleman called Matthew um, Mogridge, and he wrote to the Gardener's Chronicle. On the 31st of August, I examined many pieces of potatoes within the immediate influence of the copper smoke from the smelting works in his in this neighbourhood. Good accent. <laughs> is it? There is no occasion, perhaps, to note the individual cases, but the general result is that the leaves, home and tubers improve as you approach the works and that the nearest gardens, little more than 200 yards from them, are entirely free of the blight, and the crop, good in quality, quantity, and flavour. The potatoes are often um, of different sorts. The last named gardens, as I am informed by the proprietor, entirely escaped the disease in 1845, and have borne potatoes for 40 years. Yes, that was a letter that was written... Mm-hmm. Of somebody who had spotted that the copper was able to stop the blight, but people just did not pick up on it. Mm. So frustrating. It's like how it's many easy hundreds of thousands fix. of millions died. That's not just frustrating. That's, that's <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's quite sad. Oh no, what's our podcast turned to? <laughs> no offense to anybody. No. <laughs> there we go, fixed it. Um. <laughs> Yeah, today potato blight is still a problem and we still battle with it. And obviously an over-reliance on chemicals to treat it can have serious like side effects on the environment. So we'll try and minimise that. Um, but the potato, as we're saying, is too important of an crop to simply ignore it and let it die, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So its nutritional value outstrips that of basically any other crop for the amount of land, water and CO2 used in its growth. It spread rapidly through Europe after its first arrival and then the rest of the world. And since the 1960s, it's actually been the fastest spreading major food crop. And of course, one place where it's um, grown is our sister island, Jersey. (laughs) They're not that bad. It's a name for their Jersey Royal Potatoes. And I've got a 1905 book here, which is called The History of the Potato. And it talks about um, the potato growing in the Channel Isles and how they are shipped to... um, up to London. Mm-hmm. We've got our tomatoes, that's so fine. We do have our tomatoes, yes. And it said that in 1867, there were 22,623 tonnes exported from Jersey alone with a value of £215,000. And it's in like 1876 money as well. So That's a lot. Yeah, a lot of money there. And there's still a similar quantity of potatoes exported from Jersey to this day. Mm-hmm. But the real big player... In potatoes is not Jersey. No? No, it is China. Ah. It's in China there's been a real concerted effort to encourage the growth and consumption of potatoes. And they're actually now the world's largest producer, making over 20% of the annual global crop. That's a lot. And there's even a Chinese promotional song and uh, adverts which play on the similarity for the Chinese words for the nouveau rich and wealthy, which are uh, Tu Hao and Potato, which is Tu Dao. And um, there's a 51-year-old potato farmer turned entrepreneur named Fen Xiaoyan. She's from the northern potato-growing region of Shanxi. And, uh, yeah, she's been singing songs praising potatoes. Do you want to hear one? Yes, please. So this song is called Potato, Potato, Potato. You have to leave it build for a moment, okay? Mm-hmm. Don't think this is her singing at the moment. We need to translate the lyrics. Get ready. Come on. <laughs> Let's skip in a bit. This is playing now, I think. That's potato, I think. 
Had enough? Yeah. <laughs> that was incredible. That was, yeah, beautiful song. Mm-hmm. Reminds me a little bit of South Park. <laughs> I, I've never heard of that. <laughs> yeah, China. Like, potatoes are big there and they're, they're trying to get them to eat more. Mm-hmm. We mentioned this earlier. Um, the Centro Internacional de la Papa, uh, which is headquartered in Lima, Peru. Um, and that translates to International Potato Centre. Um, and that leads to the development of new potatoes which are more resistant to blight or drought or any other problems. Uh, through DNA research and direct hands-on work, they have achieved some success. In China, new disease-resistant varieties increased uh, returns 106%, with poor households receiving 71% of the benefit. Very good. In Tunisia, new methods for controlling potato moths led to a 64% return over 25 years. And in Vietnam, late blight-resistant varieties gave uh, an 81% return over 15 years. Yeah, they're doing really good work there Mm -hmm. to try and keep us safe so we don't have another situation like the horrible potato famines of the mid-1800s. They're really frustrating. (laughs) I'm so bad. (laughs) I hope we don't get cancelled. I wasn't frustrated at what's happened to the people. I was frustrated at people not picking up on that letter. That's true. If we, if there were podcasts like this around at that time, we, we would have saved the yeah. world. We should take our time machine back and present this. Yeah, we need to them. get out the closet, though. We do. <laughs> the closet. Yeah. <laughs> it's not the TARDIS. Okay. Um, I think those potato moths probably look like hawk moths. I like them. Anyway, um, today we have so many potatoes, don't we, that they can even be used for toys. So uh, I've got the first Mr. Potato Head advert for you here. Oh, yeah. Television advert. Prepare to be scared. Oh, no. Hey, it's Hasbro. Hasbro makes toys. What's new, Hasbro? Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head with their own cars and trailers. That's what's new. See, Mr. Potato Head has a car and boat trailer. And there's a car and shopping trailer for his wife, Mrs. Potato Head. It's such fun to do and so easy. Like this. Take any fruit or vegetable. Just stick in eyes, then ears, and then the mouth. You can make the funniest looking people in the whole world. Potato Head people look different every time you make them. I have to say, the... Potatoes actually look like potatoes. I don't know if it's real potato or if it's clay. <laughs> they are, they're real potatoes. <laughs> actually. <laughs> I find them quite scary. They're actually like the, um, that pottery that we had at the start, aren't they? Oh, yeah, yeah. In a way. Sort of. To push it into a real potato, you need to have quite a sharp pin on the back. Mm-hmm. So your kids would just be poking themselves with these sharp oh, metal pins. We, we need to do um, Dangerous Toys 2.0. Oh, we do. Yeah. Bring back the yes. Cabbage Patch Kids. <laughs> <laughs> potato Patch Kids. Oh, oh, yeah, run something. Okay, copyright, copyright, copyright. Yeah, patented. Um, anyway, um, so the potato is pretty important, yeah? Whether they're chipped, mashed, boiled, baked or roasted, the potatoes on your plate deserve some love. As post-Brexit posters proclaimed, potatoes are immigrants. They've travelled the world, but they've been accepted by people everywhere due to their versatility and incredible nutritional value. And if you've seen or read The Martian, you'll know that one day they may even be feeding us in space as well. Potatoes may seem boring, but they're far from that. These once poisonous tubers were one of the foundations of the modern world, powering people, nations, revolutions and conquest. But their story also warns us of our vulnerabilities, our dependency on brittle systems or singular sources of security. They warn us of the devastation of famine and the importance of spending on scientific research and safeguards. They tell stories of the rich exploiting the poor with cheap food and labour. As Pachamama, the Incan Earth Mother, and her daughter Zaxamama, the Potato Goddess, and Mama Killer, the Moon Goddess, warned us, we must not take too much without making sure that we give something back. And on that note, we're going to give you something back for listening to this. Um, a recipe. Yes, we can't leave without giving you a nice potato recipe and there's one for potato pie here from 1676 from um i think it's a book called true gentleman's delight now i tried looking that up <laughs> and i couldn't find uh 
Couldn't find anything. Uh, nothing bad came up though, do not worry. Okay. <clears throat> anyway, a potato pie for supper. Mm. Take three pounds of boiled and blanched. Blanched. Blanched <laughs> potatoes and three nutmegs. Go listen to nutmeg episode. And half an ounce of cinnamon beaten together and three ounces of sugar. Season your potatoes and put them in your pie. Then take the marrow of the three bones, rolled in yolks um, of eggs, and sliced lemon and large mace, and a half pound of butter, six dates quartered, put, in, put this into your pie and let it stand an hour in the oven. Then make a sharp cordial of butter, sugar, verjuice, and white wine. Put it in when you take your pie out of the oven. Voila. Sounds delicious, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, cookery's changed. I think we'll find some more recipes for the Patreon episode. Um, yeah. Little bonus. So the plan is we're going to do a Patreon episode with a bit more potato facts. It's going to be the liars, scoundrels and spies of the potatoes. So we've got a story about a man faking a herbal reference to potatoes. A man selling dodgy potatoes. The British Empire Potato Collecting Expedition to South America. Now, with a name like that, you'd think 1800s, maybe? Mm-hmm. No. It happened in 1938. <gasps> the episode will include Russian friends and Soviet spies. All sorts. So um, you can listen to that if you sign up to our Patreon. Uh-huh. I think there'll be some rewards on the £1, and then everything will be on the £5. Definitely on the £5. That's right, yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, next time you have potatoes, give them a little bit more appreciation, a bit more love, I think. Yeah. You can do the same for the podcast, too, by leaving a review or following us on Twitter. At. CuriCharPod. Or Instagram at. CuriCharPod. Facebook. <laughs> Just search for the Curiosity for Child podcast. Um, our website. TheCuriousityForChild.com. Our merchandise store. Shop.TheCuriousityForChild.com. Uh, my YouTube channel. The Curiosity of Gaming on YouTube. Uh... Is there anything else? Uh, you could email us, hello at thecuriosityofachild.com. Sign up for our Patreon. Sign up for our Patreon. Just search for the Curiosity of a Child Patreon. Yeah. And you're bound to find us. Um, we've also hopefully got an exciting interview lined up soon. Um, nothing to do with potatoes, though. Something very different. Uh, but we'll keep that secret for now. Uh-huh. I, I am very sad. No one's given us a review for ages. No. Um, we put our heart and soul into this even though our release schedule has become really bad recently which is why we're a little bit rusty and took a while to get going this episode didn't we yeah but I think I think you did okay Anton you didn't you were all I'm joking I'm joking <laughs> okay I'll cut myself out when I edit it's just going to be you speaking <laughs> okay just responding to a non-existent voice uh huh so thank you very much for listening and um, hopefully we will be back again soon with another episode on exciting topics such as us know at hello at the curiosity oh yeah good idea <laughs> whatever it is i don't know anymore right we're gonna get to bed now and sleep good night <laughs> bye Well, that was frustrating. <laughs>